Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News, and this is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading Fun Home by Allison Bechtel. It's a graphic memoir, and on the cover, it's described as a family tragicomic. The book was published in 2006. It spent two weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Time magazine called it one of the best 10 books of the year, and it was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. It was turned into a Tony Award-winning Broadway musical in 2015. Fun Home is about Bechtel's childhood in a small Pennsylvania town and her relationship with her emotionally distant, perfectionist father, who has a passion for literature, interior design, and historic preservation. At the age of 19, when Bechtel comes out to her parents as a lesbian, she discovers that her father is gay and has had multiple relationships with men throughout his life. Shortly after that revelation, her father dies. This hour, we will talk about Fun Home with two expert readers and Alison Bechdel herself, award-winning cartoonist, memoirist, and MacArthur genius. Alison, welcome to the show. Thank you, Charity. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we are overwhelmed with joy that you agreed to be part of this conversation. And I, I do want to start off. You offered to read an excerpt from the beginning of the book for us, and I... I just want to underline that this is a graphic memoir, so reading just the words means we're really only getting about half the story, but I would still love for you to read. Okay, sure. This is the very beginning of the book. And yes, uh, as you read this, as I read, imagine imagine lots of pictures. (laughs) Chapter one, Old Father, Old Artificer. Like many fathers, mine could occasionally be prevailed on for a spot of airplane. As he launched me, my full weight would fall on the pivot point between his feet and my stomach. It was a discomfort well worth the rare physical contact, and certainly worth the moment of perfect balance when I soared above him. In the circus, acrobatics where one person lies on the floor balancing another are called Icarian Games. Considering the fate of Icarus after he flouted his father's advice and flew so close to the sun that his wings melted, perhaps some dark humor is intended. In our particular reenactment of this mythic relationship, it was not me, but my father, who was to plummet from the sky. But before he did so, he managed to get quite a lot done. His greatest achievement, arguably, was his monomaniacal restoration of our old house. When other children called our house a mansion, I would demur. I resented the implication that my family was rich or unusual in any way. In fact, we were unusual, though I wouldn't appreciate exactly how unusual until much later. But we were not rich. The gilt cornices the marble fireplace, the crystal chandeliers, the shelves of calf-bound books, these were not so much bought as produced from thin air by my father's remarkable ledger domain. My father could spin garbage into gold. He could transfigure a room with the smallest offhand flourish. He could conjure an entire finished period interior from a paint chip 
He was an alchemist of appearance, a savant of surface, a Daedalus of decor. For if my father was Icarus, he was also Daedalus, that skillful artificer, that mad scientist who built the wings for his son and designed the famous labyrinth, and who answered not to the laws of society, but to those of his craft. Historical restoration wasn't my father's job, it was his passion, and I mean passion in every sense of the word, libidinal, manic, martyred. Alison Bechtel reading from her graphic memoir, Fun Home. And Alison, I would love for you to take us back in time to when you wrote Fun Home. You were, what, a successful cartoonist living in New York City. You'd been publishing the comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For since 1983. Can you tell me about the, the genesis of this book? Yeah, it's, it's funny to be talking about this book so many years later. Um, <laughs> the, the, the action of the book happens mostly when I'm around 20. I started writing the book when I was almost 40, and it took me seven years. And now I'm, I'm in my 60s, and I'm like looking, you know, it's not like this is a fresh book that, that, right. I've, that I'm just talking about for the first time. I've been talking about it for like almost, well, 15 years now. So it's funny to have that kind of perspective on it. And to, and to age with a memoir is a very... Uh, interesting experience because the book hasn't changed, but my life goes on. And, you know, I've since learned things about my past that if I wrote that memoir now would, would make it very different. So uh, it's just kind of funny. Yeah. Well, you know, books change for readers. When I come back to a book that meant something to me when I was 20 and I read it again at 40, the book is different because I'm different. I can only imagine yeah. that that is magnified because you're the author and you've learned so much about these true events. Yeah. So what was the, the germ of inspiration? So my father died when I was 19. Um, in this very traumatic way, he was hit by a truck in what we were pretty sure was uh, a suicide, that he did that intentionally. And it was a, a story that felt really powerful and important to me. And I had a sense from very, you know, not long after it happened that it was a story I needed to tell, something I needed to write about, partly because I wanted people to know this story, but also for myself, I wanted to figure out what happened. And the way I figure stuff out is by writing. But it was an impossible thing to do at age, you know, in my early 20s when this was all fresh. I didn't have the skills. I had no idea where to begin. But also, nobody knew that my father had killed himself. It, it, everyone assumed it was an accident. And Nobody, as far as I knew, knew that he was gay or, or bisexual or whatever he was. Um, so I couldn't tell the story without revealing these huge family secrets. And it took, <laughs> it took me another 20 years to like work through all of that stuff and finally be able to tackle it as a, you know, as a project. Yeah. Were, when you were writing it, 
were you thinking about other people reading it or was this something you were doing for yourself? Well, the thought of other people reading it was very inhibiting, as you might imagine. So uh, I eventually had to just not think about that. Um, I, I gave myself a challenge. I, I, I cleared my decks. I, I made enough money to take a little time off from my usual work to focus on this. And I, I knew I was going to have to tell my mother I, I, I was going to write a book about my father, but I also knew that I needed some space to myself before I told her. So I gave myself a year of working on it to get, uh, to get my own hands around it and to get, to get a, a grip on it that I, I knew I couldn't be shaken loose even if she were against the idea. Uh, so I, so I had this year to myself to just really sink into it and, uh, I just I got very committed to it, um, and when I did tell my mother, she was very commendably um, supportive of the whole thing. There is a, a moment in the book where you tell a story about the when you had a, really a personal epiphany where you understood your sexual identity. You understood that you were a lesbian. You're in a bookstore and. You pick up a book, one in a series called Word is Out. Just briefly, for people who haven't read it, can you tell me about that moment? Yeah, um, this was also when I was 19. I was a junior in college. I was just browsing in the bookstore and I picked up this book. It was um, interviews with gay men and lesbians who had who were out. I mean, this was this was 1979. The book had come out a few years earlier uh, you know, it was like a novel thing for gay people to come out. And I was just reading this book like I would have read anything that I idly picked up in the shop. But after I left the bookstore that day, it suddenly just hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my God, I, I'm one of those people. And I, I realized in the same instant that I was gay and that I was, and that it was okay. I think reading the book made me see that, oh, here are these people like leading their lives. You know, they seem functional and happy. Uh, that was a great gift and somehow allowed the, the, my identification to come to the surface. For a number of years, uh, Fun Home was a regular in the top 10 most challenged books of the year list. Um, there was a, a memorable episode in 2014, when the Republican-led South Carolina House of Representatives Ways and Means Committee considered cutting the College of Charleston's funding by $52,000 because they picked Fun Home for their summer reading program. I mean, this is a an intensely vulnerable and open and honest work. And a lot of people have pushed back against, especially young people, having access to this work, with all, along with all of the critical acclaim and accolades, how has that felt? Well, it's it's a very odd feeling. I mean, I don't. It's hard not to be a little hurt on some level, you know. I, I'm that's not my dominant emotion. Mostly, it's just like, are you serious? You people are crazy. But it's also. Like really, this is my life. What, you're, you're calling my life obscene or p- 
pornographic or whatever you're calling it. Um, so that's been, you know, kind of disturbing. But, um, you know, I, it, it also makes me happy to realize that the book is challenging people and pushing boundaries. I mean, that's what are, what are we here for except to do that? We are going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment to introduce our expert readers into this conversation. I'm talking with Allison Bechdel. She is the author of our book club book, Fun Home, a family tragic comic. And we will talk more about it in just a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We have been reading Fun Home, a family tragicomic by Allison Bechdel. It's a graphic memoir that was published in 2006 and tells the story of Bechdel's childhood, her relationship with her emotionally distant and troubled father, her coming out at the age of 19, and discovery that her father was also gay. Cartoonist, author, and MacArthur genius Allison Bechdel is amazingly here with us today, but now it's also time to introduce our expert readers. Faber McAllister is an associate professor of rhetoric and media studies and the director of the Cowles Speaking Center at Drake University. Faber, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's wonderful to have you back on the show. And and Faber, you've actually taught this book, and I want to talk more about that in a few minutes, but do you remember the first time you read it? Well, I had read Dykes to Watch Out For in college. Uh, the first time I read it would have been at the recommendation of colleagues in English who thought it was a really good book to teach. And when I sat down to read it, I didn't realize that I already knew the creator, uh -huh. um, the art and writing. Yeah, so I do remember uh, why it was so appealing. Well, personally, I was both challenged in terms of, you know, I'm a rhetorical scholar, not a, I don't do literary criticism. And then this book asks a lot of, of readers to think about literature. And I was challenged and I was deeply moved. And I knew it would work well in the classroom because it was engaging really crucial topics of identity and memory and family. There were intimate connections to literature and the role of narrative in, you know, how we narrate our stories to ourselves. And it also engages visual culture. And I teach visual rhetoric and media studies. So that you you read the book, you taught the book, but you read it again for us. What struck you this time around? <laughs> I was thinking back through my own memories of the book and what I had, I mean, because the, there's a way in which the book kind of performs this recursive role of memory and narrative and how we are unreliable narrators of our, of our own lives. I mean, there were two scenes that were just burned into my brain that I could not forget. 
And it's interesting to me how I had slightly reworked them in my memories of the book. And I do think that one of those has been powerful and profound for a lot of other readers too. Just a few weeks ago, I was talking with one of my coworkers, Naima. We were talking about what we remember from the book. We looked at each other and she said, do you remember the dinette scene? And I'm like, yes, yes. That was one of the most powerful scenes for me. It has stayed with me, but I had slightly edited it in my mind. Oh, interesting. Young Allison is at a diner with her father and a woman comes into the diner, a delivery woman comes into the diner, and she is, I guess you would describe her as sort of an old-style butch-presenting person. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's 117 and 118. It, we saw a most unsettling sight. I didn't know there were women who wore men's clothes and had men's haircuts. And the expression on Allison's face is just, It's amazing what it communicates. And there's a quote there that I just cannot forget. But like a traveler in a foreign country who runs into someone from home, someone they've never spoken to, but know by sight, I recognized her with a surge of joy. And I remembered that powerfully. What I had edited to myself was what happens in the next frame where Allison, you know, the girl has to disavow the appeal of this different way of performing gender and say, no, I don't want to look like that because her father recognizes her, the appeal of a different way of performing gender. Yeah. That's a painful moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I do want to bring our next expert reader into the conversation as well before we dig even deeper. Lauren Haldeman is here. Lauren is a poet, a cartoonist, and a graphic novelist based in Iowa City. Hello, Lauren. Hi. Well, it's wonderful to have you. And when did you first read Fun Home? Um, Let's see. It was probably 10 years ago. I had heard a lot about it. At the time, I had just sort of rediscovered the graphic novel as sort of a form. And Someone had suggested it to me since I was starting to dabble in my own, you know, graphic novel sort of hybrids. And it blew my mind. It opened up an entire new world of possibilities to me in in terms of like how a narrative could be performed, how the the work of like moving even a reader's eye across the page could be manipulated and used beautifully and it jump-started a, a new path in my own career. So, And you came back to the book this time after having published your own graphic novel, Team Photograph. So how did all of that change the reading this time? When I read um, a graphic novel, you know, I'm spending maybe like 15 seconds on one page and then maybe like 20 seconds on the next. When you're drawing a graphic novel... I mean, some of these pages, and I'm not sure your process, Allison, but it take it takes a lot of time. And it so, takes a long time. <laughs> it takes a lot of time. And so it's, I don't know how to feel about that, like watching, like I, I'll watch my child read graphic novels. And I'm so glad that he's into that. And he really opened up this whole new world for me, too, of how how graphic novels can reach young readers. But I'll just watch him speed through it. And I'm like, that took that. 
you need to slow down and you need to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're looking at like years and years worth of work here, but it's good. It, I, it's, I'm glad because, you know, I'm a huge fan of accessibility and I'm a huge fan of meeting people where they're at. And I think graphic novels do that. I think that people reading, kids reading graphic novels, adults reading graphic novels are doing reading that they might not otherwise do. Yeah. And Allison, I'd love to get your thoughts on that because, I mean, you are a great cartoonist. You are also a great writer. I mean, this this book is so well written if you take the words by themselves, which is a silly thing to do. <laughs> but um, but the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So how do you think about a graphic novel or a graphic memoir? What makes it so powerful? Um, I just want to make a comment on the <laughs> how long it takes to write <laughs> comics as opposed to reading them. The cartoonist Chris Ware has actually quantified this at a ratio of 40,000 to one. <laughs> I think that's that pretty sounds accurate. about right. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially um, when you look at some of the some of the drawings where you're recreating photographs and uh, yeah, there's so much depth. Yeah, it's a it's a practice. <laughs> But it's something I just always have felt called on to do. I, I, I've always loved the way that, I mean, I've always loved drawing, like all, all little children draw, but I never stopped. And as soon as I could read and write, I started incorporating letter forms into my drawings. I just loved the way words and pictures looked together. There's something that's always been very magical about that, just the way they look. I don't, I can't really explain it. So that's what I've spent my life doing is learning to draw and write together in this weird hybrid. Well, Faber, I mean, you've taught this book, so you've watched students react to it, both the, mm -hmm. the words and the pictures and all of the pieces put together. Do you have thoughts about why, why it is so powerful? I mean, I do. I have I have thoughts about the medium, but I also also think this particular book is pretty distinctive in the way it weaves together texts and images, stories and experiences and feelings. Some forms of visual culture, which we're all exposed to all the time and are hugely popular for circulating narratives and stories, are also really overwhelming. They don't expect demand or allow the audience to play a really active role in the meaning making because so much of the technology is kind of effaced or or hidden. So, you know, film and television can sometimes just sweep you in through identification and you don't notice necessarily what the music is doing, what the editing is doing, what the angle of the camera is doing. And I had thought, and I think students often think too, that um, this type of art exposes the technology a little bit more. It also helps that this narrative, the, the creator is constantly kind of questioning their own memory, right? She's, you know, talking about her own positionality, the way she might have edited things, other stories that could be told. But uh, I think that students find the idea of Alison Bechtel's style with, you know, kind of simple lines that convey a lot of emotion, feeling, experience as something that's more accessible to them than editing a film, making music. 
But I was stunned when, so Alison Bechdel came to Drake University and took the audience, which had a lot of students in it, through the process, like a kind of layered process of creating one particular panel, which was, I think it was like the rooftop party. Um, And there really is a tremendous amount of work and technology and editing and (laughs) revision and all of that. That's stunning. But I think it's more inviting, uh, especially, you know, there are kind of two different styles in the book. There's the kind of the more realist images that look like photographs. And the ones that are sort of her characteristic style for conveying personality, situation. And I think students find that quite accessible. But what is really striking about this particular one is the vulnerability and humility of the creator and the way that visual voice comes through in this painfully earnest way. It's very moving. Lauren's being eaten up with jealousy thinking about the fact that you got to be in that audience favor. Cool. <laughs> Allison, what did you want to add to that? That was very nice to hear, Faber. Thank you. It made me realize that what's what's exciting to me about this hybrid form is that something happens between the picture and the words. And that's something I'm always trying to it, it demands a very active role on the part of the reader. They're looking at the pictures, yeah. they're reading the words, and something, there's a, I, I make sure to leave a certain space between those things. I think of it almost like the gap in a spark plug <laughs> for a space for the reader to connect the two things. Like, I'm not, I'm not connecting it all perfectly. That would kill it. That would leave it kind of dead on the page. But what I'm always trying to do is, is to keep that space open for the sparking to happen. I mean, and that's, I think, one of the magical things about this book. But to add to that, I would say that also throughout the story in many different places, you show yourself doing that with literature. You know, you engage with the text. Sometimes you like it. Sometimes you don't understand it. And then you make meaning out of it in your own way throughout the book. So I also think you're modeling that kind of audience agency in engaging with with narratives and maybe applying them or or revising them, rewriting them and making new ones. It's so funny to me that this has become a popular book in college English classes because I had such a fraught relationship to English when I was in school. I really had a bad experience with my first English class and then didn't take another one the whole time except for this Ulysses seminar in my junior year, which comes into the story. (laughs) But but yeah, Fun Home is, as much as it's a story of me and my father, it's it's a book about books and and reading, because that's the thing that I finally realized after several years of working on this book, that was the thing that was the conduit to my father. I'd been struggling with just my memories, trying to put them in order, thinking about my queerness and my father's and I had all these thoughts and ideas but it was only when I started reading some of my father's favorite books that he had always been trying to get me to read that I started taking the whole book to a deeper level I realized that these books were I mean I was reading them to help me remember my father and and connect with who he was but then there was this whole new 
level of meaning to the book. And the, and the books became part of my book. I was quoting them and reading biographies of Oscar Wilde and F. Scott Fitzgerald and just was taken into this whole new place that I had not set out to do at the beginning. This is really great to hear because I had the feeling, especially reading it the second time, that I don't know if it's like you wrestled with the book telling you what to do or if you released control at points, but having done a project like this, I wonder if there were points where you, where the book led you or your research led you in ways that uh, you didn't even necessarily want to go and then, you know, followed suit. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like I, I learned to be a writer. I learned how to write <laughs> as I was working on this book. What I had hated about college English was this idea that things meant something other than what they mm -hmm. appeared to on the surface. And then I suddenly realized I was making a whole book that was about what was beneath the surface and that, you know, symbolism was, was this real and fascinating force that I was learning about from these writers. And now professors like Faber are forcing their students to find the <laughs> symbolism know. in your books. I know. It's really tragic. <laughs> the drawings help, though. <laughs> they really do. They do. But also, the as a person who loves literature and loves to share literature with other people, there are just so many levels of connection. You see your father finding himself in these books. You see him aspiring to be like the people in these books or like the authors, whether or not that's a mm -hmm. reality or not. And then you have your own relationship with them and then your relationship with your father through. I mean, there are just so many levels to that. And then you draw pictures of pages from the books. And I just I was <laughs> looking at that and thinking, how many hours did you spend drawing a page out of yeah that was the real crazy part i i suddenly realized that i the the books you know i was quoting the books why not actually show the books yeah you know bring That's these amazing. pages in and i was especially just transfixed by the the copy of ulysses that my dad gave me this beautiful um version of ulysses and i it was just so fun to to draw this book and to incorporate it into my book to draw and finally I realized, oh, I don't have to just draw a passage. I can include a whole page mm -hmm. as a page of my book. That was sort of a breakthrough. This this was the first time I ever saw anyone do that um, was in, in this book. And, uh, you know, that the idea that in, as well as just quoting research or quoting um, a passage that you need that you would that you draw the page. We have to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. We are talking about Fun Home, a family tragicomic by Alison Bechdel. And Alison Bechdel herself is here with us today. We'll be back in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and we have been reading Fun Home, a family tragicomic by Allison Bechdel. It is a graphic memoir that was published in 2006. It tells the story of Bechdel's childhood, her coming of age, her relationship with her emotionally distant and troubled father, her coming out at the age of 19, and her discovery that her father was also gay. Allison Bechtel is here with us today, cartoonist, author, and MacArthur genius, and many other things as well. We also have our expert readers here. Lauren Haldeman is a poet, a cartoonist, and a graphic novelist based in Iowa City. And Faber McAllister is an associate professor of rhetoric and media studies and the director of the Cowles Speaking Center at Drake University. And I want to dive into talking about understanding a parent-child relationship. I mean, that's something that so many of us work through and different events as we age shed light on that parent-child relationship. We start to understand our parents better. And and Allison, you know, in the, the beginning of this book, I hated your father. I just <laughs> hated him. And I, I didn't find a lot of sympathy for him. And then my sympathy, my understanding for him grew throughout the book. Did did you feel like the the book in some ways mirrors your own emotional journey? Yeah, I definitely came to a place of great forgiveness writing it. But also, I I didn't hate my father. I mean, yeah. I did. I hated a lot of things about him, but I also helplessly loved him. You know, because he was my father. So I, I had always been struggling with those like, oh, my God, he just did so much damage. But I love him so much. And so in a way, the book was to, a way to work that out and how to forgive him and hold him responsible, you know, and express my anger and disappointment. Yeah. Faber, in teaching students, I mean, you're, you're teaching people in their 20s, people who have not worked through a lot of, a lot of these feelings mm. yet. I mean, I can imagine that that's, that's a source of a lot of conversation is students suddenly starting to think about their parents as real people. Yeah, I mean, in, in young adulthood, we are thinking about how those familial relationships shaped our own identity. You know, some of the, some of the joy, a lot of the pain, sometimes learning about very different situations that other people grew up in and having conversations about that. I used to teach a class called Rhetoric for the American Family, which was really about kind of the normative script. And we learned a bit of history and some other things. But the pressures that um, the ideal family, which doesn't represent really anybody uh, places on those relationships. And also we were responding to kind of the family values. We were leave it, leave it to Beaver thousands of years ago, you know, kind of political rhetoric at that time. Uh, but students really relate to that process of trying to, well, and I hate to say it's just people in their 20s. I mean, I'm still sorting through how my childhood, how my siblings, how my very different relationships with each parent shaped who I am, how that carries over into the next generation in the form of compassion or trauma. <laughs> it's quite complicated. Yeah. Well, and, and there's, as I said, as you age, you see things differently. Becoming a parent, if you do that, that certainly shifts your understanding. I mean, Lauren, you want to add anything there? <laughs> I mean, I, every age that my 
child turns, it's it's like I have to redo that year in my mind of my own childhood. I'm not choosing to do it. And and it reveals so much about one, like what I assumed was the normal American family, which, you know, is revealed not to be true. But when you're a kid, that's your entire reality. So to have something to compare it to is is surprising. And then also just to sort of mourn, you know, like to mourn not only the childhood you did have, but the one that you didn't, that you could have had. I really liked that this whole book, you know, I'm really interested in grief. I think a lot of people become interested in grief, not by their own volition, it's sort of forced upon you. And this book had, there were so many layers of, of dealing with grief and working through um, memories and relationships. But the second time I read it, I had this distinct feeling. I thought, oh, she's visiting with him. Like, this is a visit. And that, it makes me feel like kind of like choked up a little bit just saying it. That you, I don't, I'm assuming this, but the drawing the photographs and redoing his handwriting, that there's something so like intimate and so physical about that that it must have yeah. it must have been a joy and and a sorrow yes it was definitely both those things and yeah the drawings were a great act of intimacy interestingly my work on this book coincided with the evolution of digital photography all of a sudden you could get a camera and take a million digital photos for free and i started really doing that as a drawing aid i would pose as all these characters, I'd pose as my mother or as my father or as both of them in a scene. Oh my gosh, and that's pretty surreal. It was. And it, I mean, it, primarily it was just to get the, the poses accurate in my drawing, but also I was embodying them. I was, mm -hmm. I had for that split second that I was taking the photo to be them. And that was a really interesting exercise in, in empathy that I yeah. think gave, gave an extra level to the book, or to the drawing at least. Well, and this is a book about grief. Your father dies, but that's not your only encounter with death. The name of the book is Fun Home, and that's shorthand for the family business. Your dad was a funeral director, and you and your siblings all spent a lot of time working in this funeral home. Your understanding, I mean, your relationship to death growing up was so different from the average American person. I, I did. I mean, I my dad was a funeral director. He was he was kind of cynical about it. I mean, he I'm sure he was very respectful with all the families and stuff, but he also felt like these rituals were kind of absurd, embalming and the you know the crazy elaborate caskets. So I grew up with this kind of critical attitude toward the whole way that we observe death. But also, my friends were amazed that I would see dead bodies. And that was kind of cool. I liked that. It made me feel like special. Yeah. Because most people don't let their kids see dead people until they're, I don't know, how old? But 30. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until it happened. But it, right. was, it was routine. I saw dead people all the time. And I always felt like that was... A sort of a gift, like, okay, I know what we're dealing with. This is 
real and this is going to happen to me. But at the same time, there was something about that constant exposure that ironically made it kind of distanced for me, that when it did come to me in the form of my father's death, it was so surreal. Like to see him in a casket in our family funeral home was just like I couldn't process that. Well, and the your reaction that you depict of of hysterical laughter or just, yeah. you know, emotional reactions that were strong emotional reactions, but not, not what you would expect. Yeah. I love how you, um, this is so familiar on page 50, where you say, you would also think that a childhood spent in such close proximity to the workaday incidentals of death would be good preparation that when someone you knew actually died, maybe you get to skip a phase or two of the grieving process. I love that thought process. It's so human. Like, oh, can we break this down into phases? And I've already checked off these two or three phases. Mm. Um, I had to st- I just stop reading when I read that because I thought that's, I mean, what's what all trying to do is we're all trying to, to get through it the easy way. And especially yeah. with grief, there, there's not much you can do. No, and the harder you try, the more you prolong it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can remember at a certain point, you know, maybe six weeks after my father died, thinking, okay, I'm just tired of him being dead now. Yeah. Um, It's so exhausting. (laughs) Like, the grief every day, it's so exhausting. Can I just wake up? Part of the issue for me was I wasn't grieving. I wasn't feeling anything. Mm. I went through most of my 20s just shut down until I finally had a kind of little breakdown and went into a depression and went to therapy and immediately started dealing with it. But it took years. So actually, writing this book was a way for me to give my father a proper funeral instead of this sort of ridiculous cardboard one that we all went through Mm -hmm. at the time. But to really talk about who he was, and tell his story. We are going to run out of time here. Graphic novels, I mean, I mentioned earlier that that this is a book that's been challenged and banned a lot. And right now we're in this moment where a lot of graphic novels and graphic memoirs are among the most banned. And and that makes me think that a a large, I mean, obviously a big part of this are the illustrations, the power of the illustrations and, and the fact that you can't erase them in your mind. You know, you you read it, but then you see it and you understand it. Do you think that your book would have been challenged or banned if it wasn't a, a graphic memoir? I don't. That's a really good point. Um, there's a few pages with naked people having sex, and that's what blows everybody's gaskets. But there are scenes that, if they were just written, would, would be quite mild. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's really happening. But interestingly, you know, I, I talk about the, the book Ulysses, which is sort of structures my book. And Ulysses was banned and censored. And that actually comes into play in my book at the very end. I talk about the whole censorship process that his book went through. So that was kind of interesting to me, especially as these book bans have picked up, you know, momentum just to, to realize that this has always been going on. Yeah. I would love to hear from all three of you why you think someone should read this book. 
uh, you know, and we don't have to talk about what age that someone should be or, or why they might pick it up. But Lauren, why do you think people should read Fun Home? Okay, I'm getting I'm giving Fun Home to my uh, kid for Christmas this year. So he's 13 years old. And I one, I just want him to see like that that this is possible, like that this this form, this genre can be very literary and it can like it's kind of sneaky how you 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 bring in so many literary sources and and I don't I don't feel like I'm being like taught, but I'm I'm learning. I also just want him to see what different relationships look like in different families. We've been pretty open about all of his sort of like discovering who he is and discovering who he loves. And I want him to see like dif- the different ways that it has been in the past and just in sort of the, that family dynamic. So for me, it's really personal. I I want to have a conversation with my kid about this book. Yeah. Well, and I, we didn't talk about this, but we see Allison's father coming of age in the 50s at a time when he could not be his authentic self or the the consequences of being his authentic self were just far greater than he was willing to pay. We see you, Allison, coming of age in the the late 70s and and early 80s. And there were still consequences, difficult consequences to to being your authentic self. But there was just a huge, huge change from the 50s to the 80s. And then to think about to the 2000s, to the 2020s. I mean, I'm constantly telling my kids, no, you don't understand how deeply homophobic culture was when I was growing up in the 1980s. Just read, like reading your mom's letter, your mom's reaction, reading it, it's like disbelief. Like I cannot, now having, you know, done this and raised a queer child, like I can't, I just cannot imagine responding in that way. Yeah. You know, but it was that was the way it was. Faber, why do you think someone should read this book and not just because you assign it? I would say because narrative and visual art have the power to challenge or shift our sense of the given reality that we're living in, to imagine a new world, imagine our our identities differently, to create connections across differences. All all three of my kids are in college now. When they were young, they loved uh, graphic novels and their ability to tackle difficult topics, not just ideas, but feelings and experiences Mm -hmm. um, that really spoke to them. And I was able to connect with them intimately that way. Now that they're in college, two of my kids are, are queer identified and they're sort of rediscovering their mom as a as a queer feminist. I'll say one other thing about what's so beautiful and generous about this creator. Not only has this book provided a way to connect with my students and my kids, but when I came to see Alison Bechtel's lecture afterward, there was a big line of people asking her to autograph their books. And I let the student, you know, the younger people go first and I waited. And by the time I got up there, all the books were sold out and Allison felt bad and took out a piece of paper and drew a self-portrait and autographed it to my my oldest, my daughter, who is a huge fan of her work and is also 
queer identified. And I can't, it's framed on a wall. I can't tell you how much that <laughs> meant to a young person, you know, who needed to see themselves represented. Wow. Well, past Allison, you must, you must be very proud of her, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's an unfair question for you, Allison, so you can answer it if you want to. You don't have to answer it. Why do you think someone should read this book? For me, I think the power of breaking the silence around a family secret, I think, is I think most families, a very, very high percentage of families have painful secrets in their past. This is a book where someone actually does it. Uh, and I think that's what people find moving in it is that someone did the thing no one is supposed to do and <laughs> lived to tell about it. Alison Bechdel, thank you so much. Thank you. Alison Bechdel, she is the author of our book club book, Fun Home, a Family Tragicomic. Lauren Haldeman, thank you. Thanks. Lauren Haldeman is a poet, a cartoonist, and a graphic novelist based in Iowa City. And Faber McAllister, thank you. This was an honor. Faber McAllister is an associate professor of rhetoric and media studies at Drake University. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. The producer of this episode is Caitlin Troutman with support from Samantha McIntosh. Thanks to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing books for our readers. And this episode, like almost all episodes of Talk of Iowa, did pass the Bechdel test. I'm Charity <laughs> Nevis. <Nettie. laughs>